Gresham College presents Waterloo Causes, Courses and Consequences by Professor Sir Richard Evans. Good evening, everybody. Uh, once a year, the Provost of Gresham College, uh, which is the office I'm proud and delighted to hold, gives a lecture. And quite by chance, uh, the lecture was scheduled long ago uh, for the exact anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, the 200th anniversary, which is today, shown here in a later painting by the Victorian artist William Holden Sullivan. So in this lecture, I want to explore the causes, courses and consequences of the battle. Why was it fought? Who fought it? Who won? And why? And how important was it? Well, to the Daily Mail, and probably to many others in the country, the answer to these questions seem so obvious as hardly to merit discussion. It was a battle in which the British, led by the Duke of Wellington, bashed the French, led by the Emperor Napoleon, and thus brought his dream of a European dictatorship to an end in a decisive moment of world history. Well, the next three quarters of an hour or so, I want to persuade you that every single one of these statements is wrong. The British did not bash the French, the Duke of Wellington did not defeat the Emperor Napoleon, and the battle was not a decisive moment in world history. Okay, so let's start with the, with the background. Of course, it starts with this man. Who was Napoleon Bonaparte? Well, he was born in Corsica in 1769, became a leading commander in the armies of the French Revolution, defeating the military might of the Habsburg Empire, the leading power among the enemies of revolutionary France. His success as a general gave him huge political influence, which he used in 1799 to stage a coup d'etat in France, then in 1804, to proclaim himself Emperor of the French. And in a long series of brilliant military victories at Ulm, Austerlitz, Jena, Auerstedt, uh, seen here in a painting by the uh, contemporary French artist Horace uh, Verne, uh, at Friedland, Wagram and others, he defeated the successive coalitions of different powers put together by the Austrians to try and stop him, and he established his domination over the whole of Europe. He redrew its map. He uh, prompted the abolition of the thousand-year-old Holy Roman Empire, establishing his relatives or his marshals on a whole range of thrones of half of Europe. He beat the leading German states, Austria and Prussia, into submission. And in the process, the boundaries of France were extended far to the east till they included huge chunks of western Germany and northern Italy. You can see Napoleon at his height there. You can see the, the French France actually now goes to the borders of, uh, of, of Denmark. It includes Hamburg and Bremen. It goes down there. Uh, includes uh, large bits much further south. Then these are kind of light, light, blue, uh, light blue bits are client states of the French. So that's uh, in, that's uh, in 1810. Well, while he was almost continuously victorious on land, he met with a series of defeats at sea against the British, who fought the French Empire across the globe, as indeed they had the Kingdom of France through most of the 18th century, from India to Canada. Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, seen here in a painting by Turner, enabled the British to establish a stranglehold over the continent with a naval blockade. <clears throat> while Napoleon reposted with his continental system, which was aimed at denying Britain access to continental European markets and sources of supply. 
It was the Russian Tsar's Alexander I's refusal to stop trading with the British that provided the trigger for Napoleon to lead the Grand Army, 680,000 strong, into Russia in 1812. Victories at Smolensk and at Borodino, the bloodiest battle of the entire Napoleonic Wars, memorably, of course, described in Tolstoy's War and Peace, failed to bring the decisive victory Napoleon was looking for. The Russians extricated themselves, they retreated, and they avoided further major encounters. They burnt Moscow to the ground, denied the Grand Army the quarters and supplies it so badly needed as winter came on. Napoleon was forced to retreat, as shown in the German artist Adolf Norden's later painting, losing men to hypothermia, typhus, starvation, and guerrilla raids by the Cossack cavalry who harassed the retreating French mercilessly as they marched back towards Central Europe. Altogether, 380,000 to 400,000 troops in the Grand Army died. Nearly 200,000 were taken prisoner. Almost nothing was left of it by the end of the year, shown in the famous graphic completed by Charles-Joseph Minard in 1869. You can see the light-shaded bit is uh, the Grand Army marching left to right. Uh, the dark-shaded bit is marching back until it's only a very thin line of not very many left by the time they return. The retreat from Moscow, the destruction of the Grand Army, provided the trigger for the Austrians to put together a sixth coalition of European powers and the first to include all the major states. Among them, Russia, Prussia, Britain, Spain, now largely liberated from Napoleonic rule by the uh, military victors, victories of the British expedition led by Wellington and by guerrilla action by Spaniards, Sweden, Portugal, a number of minor German states. And you can see the red bits are the, uh, the, the, the coalition. In practice, most of Spain belonged to it uh, as well. Uh, now, um, after a series of um, uh, encounters, the grand, this seventh, the sixth coalition's army, about 800,000 men in total, uh, confronted Napoleon, who raised a new army of 600,000 strong. As a series of bloody but inclusive, inconclusive engagements, but uh, 430,000 Allied troops converged on Leipzig, where they heavily defeated Napoleon's force of 191,000, so much smaller, less than half the size, in the Battle of the Nations, which was the largest military engagement in Europe before the First World War. That's the Battle of the, of the Nations, and around Leipzig you can see Napoleon is basically blocked in. Uh, it's worth remembering those names. Blücher at the top with the Prussians, who finally, after a long period of equivocation, had turned around to uh, oppose Napoleon, and in the south, the Austrians led by Schwarzenberg. So uh, they, they can bear a dot, is a Swedish marshal who again turned against Napoleon, uh, and Napoleon's absolutely uh, surrounded. He refused uh, peace terms, retreated to France, uh, but Wellington was now advancing with British and Spanish armies from the south, uh, while more than 400,000 Allied troops marched in from the Rhine. With only 80,000 troops left in his army, Napoleon did not stand a chance. His senior officers, led by Marshal Ney, another name to remember, mutinied and refused to continue fighting after the Allies had occupied Paris. Napoleon was forced to abdicate in April 1814 and was taken into exile 
on the Mediterranean island of Elba between Tuscany and Corsica. Rather unwisely, perhaps, the Allies allowed him to take 600 troops with him. <laughs> While the Allied representatives met in Vienna in September to hammer out a peace settlement. As a contemporary cartoon, journey of a modern hero to the island of Elba, uh, back on his way into exile, facing backwards on a, on a donkey. Well, the first thing the Allies did, even before they met at Vienna, was to restore the French monarchy under Louis XVIII, brother of the executed Louis XVI. Extravagant, gluttonous, he was enormously fat, and his death in 1824 indeed was ascribed by contemporary doctors to morbid obesity. Louis entered Paris on the 4th of May 1814 at the invitation of the French Senate, Napoleon's Senate, uh, and to general public acclaim. He travelled in a coach since he was unable to walk. But the new regime got into trouble almost immediately. He was overwhelmed by, there, there he is, a uh, sort of rather discreet picture. Um, there are others that make him look fatter than that. Uh, the, the, the regime had to pay for the legacy of the war, which had been in, drained France of resources. So it retained the unpopular taxes imposed by Napoleon. It imposed cutbacks in expenditure on the army. It disbanded half its men and put 12,000 officers on half pay, creating, of course, serious discontent among those affected. You remember, France had been almost continuously at war since the early 1790s. So most of these, a lot of these men had spent their entire adult lives uh, as soldiers. They knew uh, nothing, nothing else. They had no other career. Louis XVIII alienated liberals by reimposing censorship after decades of impassioned debate from the French Revolution even before it uh, onwards. And he, Louis XVIII, rejected the constitution voted through by Napoleon's last Senate after it had formally deposed the emperor, and had it publicly burned in a Paris square because he didn't accept that his royal authority derived from an implicit contract between the king and the people. It came, he said, from divine right. He was granting the French people their rights of his own free will. And the proclamation of a militant Catholicism as the state's religion alienated more educated Frenchmen brought up with the principles of the Enlightenment. There were widespread fears that the king would try and restore lands confiscated by the revolution to their original clerical and aristocratic owners. They'd been divided up by the revolution, parceled out among thousands and thousands of, of peasants and small landowners. Uh, the aristocrats, in fact, came back from exile and started behaving with rather ill-advised arrogance towards their former subjects. At 59 years of age, having grown up in the French court at Versailles before the Revolution, Louis XVIII was an intransigent figure. He abolished the universal male suffrage introduced by the Revolution. He refused to fly the tricolore and replaced it with the royal fleur de lys as the official flag. He refused to recognise the Légion d'honneur instituted by Napoleon. He counted 1814 as the 19th year of his reign, when a courtier told him in 1814 of Napoleon's abdication and said, Sire, you are king of France. He said, have I ever ceased to be king of France? And the court rituals, titles, ceremonies of the Ancien Régime came back in their full pomp. So he quickly became unpopular, especially among public servants of the revolutionary and Napoleonic periods, 
who considered him, apart from anything else, incapable of filling Napoleon's boots, as in this slightly later uh, cartoon. <laughs> After several months on the Isle of Elba, Napoleon began to realise that the restored monarchy was losing support. The Allies <coughs> were starting to quarrel with one another at the Congress of Vienna. The return of thousands of his troops from captivity in Russia and Germany, along with the discontent of masses of his former soldiers, provided a fertile recruiting ground from which to build a new army. On the 26th of February, 1815, as the British and French guard ships were away, he slipped off the island with his troops. There he is embarking uh, on, the, on the journey, scene painted by Joseph Bohm. He landed near Cannes, and he traveled across the Alps. He didn't go straight north because it, the, the whole of the southern area is a hotbed of royalist sentiment. So he went round uh, by the Alps, entered southeastern France. His return triggered an outburst of popular sentiment in favor of preserving the legacy of the revolution. Meeting a detachment of royalist troops, he stepped forward, uh, pulled open his jacket and said, if any of you will shoot your emperor, shoot him now. They rushed over to join him. Louis XVIII sent one of Napoleon's greatest and most famous marshals, Marshal Ney, to put down the rebellion. Declaring that Napoleon was a madman who should be put in a cage, Ney led a force of 6,000 troops southwards. But when he saw the former emperor, his resolve melted, and he too uh, went over to his side with his troops. And this was, I think, the decisive moment in what became known as the Hundred Days. Louis and his court prudently withdrew to the Netherlands. On the 20th of March, 1815, Napoleon entered Paris to a, a rapturous welcome, just as Louis XVIII had uh, entered Paris uh, not a few months before. Now, in the south, uh, Louis XVIII's nephew, the Duc d'Angoulême, seen here in a contemporary portrait from the studio of François-Joseph Cresson, raised a militia of 100,000 men and set up, in effect, a kind of independent or autonomous royalist state. He was in the end forced to uh, leave, but his supporters re-emerged later on to instigate a, a very violent white terror against the former emperor's supporters. Demonstrations of support for Napoleon from Parisian workers alienated many bourgeois notables. The emperor faced serious hostility amongst the clergy. In areas like the Vendée and Brittany, traditionally royalist, he couldn't win much support. Uh, so it wasn't the whole of France by any means who supported Napoleon's return. It was particularly amongst his former soldiers who were angered by the mass dismissals and the economy measures imposed by the restored monarchy that he was popular. I only have the people and the army up to captain level for me, he remarked. The rest are scared of me, but I can't rely on them. And I think really his, his arrival uh, exposed the deep divisions in French society left by a quarter of a century of revolutionary conflict. Well, conveniently all assembled in one place at the uh, Congress of Vienna, the Allies immediately declared Napoleon to be an outlaw, uh, as a, uh, beyond the pale of civil society, the declaration uh, uh, put it, penned by his former foreign minister, Talleyrand, who had prudently switched sides. Anyone who could thus murder him without fear of prosecution. It was legal to shoot him. Louis XVIII remained 
the legitimate, internationally recognized head of the French state. <coughs> the Allies now formed a seventh coalition, the last one, in which Britain, Austria, Russia, and Prussia each promised to raise 150,000 troops. That's uh, 600,000 troops and undertook not to make a separate peace with Napoleon. Altogether, 16 states joined the coalition, including Spain and Portugal, Sweden, Switzerland, Sardinia, Tuscany, the two Sicilies, Hanover, Brunswick, Nassau, and of course, the Kingdom of France. Within a short space of time, they had nearly a million men under all. A quarter of a million Russian troops began the long march westwards towards France. The British were unable to raise a large force uh, because a, a great proportion of their army was still in North America, having burned down the White House in 1812 in the war against the United States. But the British made substantial sums of money available to the other coalition powers to pay for troops, ammunition, pay, and arms, supplies, and so on. Well, for his part, of course, Napoleon realised that this is going to happen, so he tried to assure the Allies of his peaceful intentions. His emissary, Fleury de Chaboulon, told the Austrian representative at a secret meeting at the Three Kings Inn in Basel, the only leader we want is Napoleon, but not the conquering ambitious Napoleon, but Napoleon tamed by adversity. As a compromise, the Allies who were already disillusioned with the tactless and politically incompetent Louis XVIII, offered to place Napoleon's son on the throne with Napoleon as a regent. But he uh, was only encouraged by this. These gentlemen, he said, are starting to come round since they're offering me the regency, he told his uh, entourage. My firmness is making them respect me. In a month, I'll no longer fear them. And I think his intransigence at that point in the end was to prove his undoing. The secret negotiations were broken off. The Allied armies continued to be mustered and got ready to march. The Russians continued to move towards Central Europe. Now, Napoleon was no longer the vigorous and healthy man <coughs> he'd been in his heyday. Fleury, his emissary in these talks, told the Austrian representative, the former emperor has become fat and flabby, heavy and sluggish. He sleeps a great deal and he realises what he needs now is peace and quiet. Not terribly plausible. Uh, it was, of course, designed to reassure the Austrians that he was less of a threat than they feared. And whether he was actually suffering some kind of illness, uh, which has been widely debated in the literature ever since, he certainly not lost his former drive. Within weeks, he mustered nearly a quarter of a million men. As the provincial administrators, <coughs> mostly appointed by him, did their job of recruitment as before. As veterans, including those many who'd come back from imprisonment in Germany and Russia, disillusioned with the bourgeois restoration, rallied to the tricolor. Now, Napoleon left a substantial portion of these troops to guard the French capital and large forces to prevent royalist insurrections and allied invasions in the south and west. Uh, that's Napoleon not looking very happy or very particularly well contemporary drawing. Now, there's you can see, uh, you can see um, here, uh, now where are we? There's Paris, so he leaves some troops there. He's got to leave some troops in the west because it's a heavily royalist area. Uh, he's got to have uh, troops along the Rhine, 
because there's an enormous army led by Schwarzenberg, the Austrians, uh, and the Austrians gathering on the right bank of the Rhine. Uh, he's got to leave some more down, down south. So um, he's, got to, he's dispersing this quarter of a million forces and forming them into military groups. He's got other forces facing him up in the, up in the north and another one uh, up there. So um, uh, he, uh, he's uh, only got a portion of his total force under his command. When he advanced with the rest, uh, with what's left to meet the Allied armies, drawn up between, between Paris uh, and Brussels. So you can see uh, Allied armies are, are massing up there. Um, now, uh, in, uh, in, in mid-June, when he advanced with his troops to meet these Allied army, armies, which are drawn up in this area, um, he was, his aim was to prevent the, the, the two major forces, uh, one led by Duke of Wellington and the other led by the Prussian Blücher, his aim was to prevent them from uniting and to defeat them sequentially. Uh, otherwise, he'd be outnumbered. He actually wrong-footed Wellington, who expected him to try and surround the two forces in his usual way. Uh, by advancing swiftly, he stole a march on the Allies. Now, the first of these two Allied armies was an entirely Prussian force, commanded by Field Marshal Leberecht von Blücher. Born in 1742, he was a veteran of the Seven Years' War, who had risen to command the army that defeated Napoleon, as you saw earlier at the Battle of Nations, in Leipzig. Uh, there's old Blücher beating the Corsican big drum, uh, beating him, that is, at, at the Battle of the Nations at Leipzig in a rather, rather enjoyable um, uh, cartoon. It's a victory for which he received the title of prince from the Prussian king. Blücher was famous for his impetuosity and daring. He was known popularly as General Forwards, General Vorwärts. A lifelong soldier, he played a significant role in reforming and restructuring the armies in Prussia after they were defeated so heavily by Napoleon at Jena and Auerstedt. He was a leader of the so-called Patriotic Party in Prussia, an impassioned advocate of war against the French at a time when Prussia in 1812-13 had not made up its mind. Blücher's force in 1815 numbered about 90,000 men, but a third of them consisted of poorly trained militia, and a substantial contingent of Saxons had mutinied and been sent home even before the campaign began. Guns, ammunition, equipment, and short supply, they were still being delivered to him during the campaign. Blücher failed to get a substantial part of his army under General von Bülow up to the front in time. But... Uh, although he considered that the French, uh, the odds were with the French, uh, he uh, thought a retreat would damage morale. So he took up a defensive position against the, advan the uh, advancing army of about 80,000, led by Napoleon, and waited for the main Allied force under the Duke of Wellington to arrive as promised. They were, of course, communicating with each other all, all the time. Uh, now there you can see um, the Battle of Ligny, a rough... Uh, a rough indication there um, uh, of uh, uh, the, uh, the French versus the, the Prussians, the first battle of the, uh, well, of the Waterloo campaign. Now, <clears throat> Napoleon had an observation post built and realised that Blücher had arranged his forces in the expectation of being relieved by Wellington along the road from Quatre Bras. So Wellington was expected to come down this way. Uh, so uh, the Prussian 
uh, he, he launched a fierce attack on, on Blucher's right, frank, right flank uh, up here, and uh, the um, Prussian militias panicked. When Blucher tried to rally the troops, his horse was shot from under him. Uh, almost all the generals lost several horses during, uh, during the, the, these battles, but um, in, in, in most movies of battle these times, of course, you don't, uh, you don't see this happening. The horses were the most vulnerable uh, of, uh, of all the elements in the battle. Um, he was shot from under, he fell, and his horse pinned him to the ground. And you can see poor Blucher there, uh, not looking very happy, underneath the horse um, uh, at the Battle of Ligny. Um, and the, uh, the, the uh, two French cavalry charges passed over them before he could be rescued. The Prussian uh, command thought he was dead. And as Ligny fell to Napoleon's old guard, the Prussians retreated in disorder, losing 16,000 dead and wounded and another 6,000 deserters from the militias. But Napoleon's forces, Napoleon's lost about 12,000 men. It's quite a major battle. His forces failed to follow up and complete the rout. By the time the final Prussian units retreated, it was three in the morning. The French troops were tired. They were unable to make rapid progress over the heaps of dead and piles of abandoned guns and equipment and the bodies of horses. The Prussian command was able, uh, after a while, to restore order and rally their remaining troops. Blucher, who was heavily bruised but not seriously wounded, had himself rubbed all over with a potion made of garlic, brandy, gin and rhubarb. (laughs) He was given a bottle of champagne to drink. He put his uniform on and arrived at headquarters, just as his second-in-command, Gneisenau, was starting to organise a retreat, as Napoleon expected them to do. As he roughly embraced his English liaison officer, Hardinge, um, you can imagine the poor man wincing because he just had his arm amputated, (laughs) Blucher shouted, Ixtinka! Ixtinka! Ha-ha! I stink! I stink! Uh, And resumed command, ordering his army to carry out the original plan of getting together and uniting with Wellington's force. Now, meanwhile, a smaller French force of about 24,000 under Marshal Ney took the strategic crossroads of Quatrebras, which you saw a moment ago, uh, up Quatrebras, uh, up there, uh, to prevent Wellington joining up with Blucher. And as the Allied troops, numbering about 36,000, streamed towards the battle scene, there was fierce fighting, uh, the Allied troops having the upper hand. But when he learned of Blucher's defeat at Ligny, Wellington had to withdraw. Each side lost uh, around, um, you can see up there, it's a bit clearer map there, there's Quatrebras. Wellington comes down here, uh, but he's blocked by, after the, the, the French victory, uh, Blucher's sort of going up that way, uh, and he has, Wellington then has to turn around and go back. Each side lost about 4,000 soldiers in the encounter. Uh, now, that's, um, that's the two. The, these are the battles in relationship to one another. Okay, there's Ligny, there's Quatrebras, and there's Waterloo. So it all takes place very much in the same kind of area. The French stream up this way, beat the Prussians back. They have to go away. Uh, they beat the British back, and, and it all moves up from, from here up to, up to there. Realising the Prussian army had managed to regroup and had not dissolved as he'd expected, Napoleon sent 33,000 men under Marshal Grouchy to pursue it. Blucher left a rear guard of 17,000 in a defensive position at Wavre 
under General Thielemann while he set off to join Wellington with his main force of 72,000 Prussians. And the fierce fighting, and you can see Wavre is, is there. So the Prussians are coming up. Uh, Napoleon leaves, leaves a second. They, they retreat in that direction, take a stand there. Uh, Napoleon sends Marshal Gouchy there to try and beat them. So he split his main force into two lines. Um, the fierce fighting throughout the afternoon of the 18th of June, 17,000 Prussians held off Cauchy's 33,000 Frenchmen long enough to prevent them from joining Napoleon's main army. So the Frenchmen uh, were ordered to meet, um, uh, to go and join the main army. And in fact, even before that, one of the junior officers said, just march towards the sound of gunfire. The famous soldiers are always saying that. But march towards the sound of gunfire because the Battle of Waterloo is in full train. But Grouchy was afraid of disobeying the emperor. He'd been told to hold, to, to take Favre, so he stayed there. And so to the Battle of Waterloo itself. After these earlier encounters, the main Allied force took up a defensive position along a ridge a mile away from the town of Waterloo. Uh, it's uh, uh, the, uh, of course, Wellington knew that Blucher had reformed his army and was, mo uh, was marching to, to join him. Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, born in 1869, so in his mid-50s, was a professional soldier. He'd fought in India and the Netherlands before in 1808-9, taking charge of British forces in the Iberian Peninsula, which at that time was occupied by the French. <coughs> now, Wellington was essentially a defensive commander. Uh, he was famous for developing a method of defence where you kind of occupied a ridge and they put most of your soldiers behind it uh, uh, to, to avoid the enemy gunfire and then pop out when things get difficult. Uh, sort of flexible defence. Uh, he made very slow progress in the peninsula against a series of armies led by Napoleon's marshals before defeating them at the Battle of Vittoria in 1813, which opened the way for him to uh, enter France. This is the occasion not only for his elevation to a dukedom, but also for Beethoven's Battle Symphony, which is written for a mechanical orchestra as possibly his lucrative and certainly his worst composition. After Napoleon's defeat and exile to Elba, Wellington was made British plenipotentiary at the Congress of Vienna. But they sent him off to take command of the Allied forces in what is now Belgium, <coughs> with the aim of defending Brussels uh, against uh, Napoleon. Now, uh, it's important to realise that the army Wellington commanded at Waterloo was not a British army. Out of 68,000 troops, only 25,000 were British. The rest of the army was made up of 6,000 troops from the King's German Legion and 11,000 Hanoverians. Both of these forces, of course, consisted of German subjects of King George III, who was also King of Hanover, as British kings had been uh, since 1714. There were 17,000 Dutch troops. There were 6,000 more Germans from the Duchy of Brunswick and 3,000 from Nassau. So you add them all together, there's more German and British troops in Wellington's army. 26,000 is against 25,000. It's an allied force. It's a force of the seventh coalition of the European powers against Napoleon. Now against them, Napoleon could pit about 73,000 men. He outgunned Wellington by 252 guns, 2156. He had 14,000 cavalry against Wellington's 11,000. 
The best British troops, veterans of the Peninsula Campaign, were in America. Wellington said, I have an infamous army, very weak and ill-equipped, and a very inexperienced staff. By contrast, Napoleon's troops were mostly battle-hardened veterans. Wellington's a bad general, Napoleon told his marshals. The English are bad troops. This affair is nothing more than eating breakfast. Wellington, of course, knew that Blucher was marching to his aid. There was constant messages going backwards and forwards. So his task was to hold the line until the Prussians arrived. It's the sort of thing he did best. And this would then, when they came, give him a decisive numerical advantage. Napoleon's task was to break the Allied line before this happened, either forcing the Prussians to retreat or enabling him to turn on them after defeating the Allied force under Wellington uh, and uh, with his numerical superiority. Still uh, thinking that the Prussians were continuing to gather their strength together, he thought it would take them two days before they could arrive, and in any case, Grouchy, with his force, could handle them. So Napoleon wasn't concerned uh, about the delay occasioned by his observation that the ground in the early morning was dangerously soft. So he waited until uh, well after 10, uh, indeed uh, even later than that, uh, to launch his assault. It wasn't really, it didn't really get going until even later than that. And this hesitation, I think, was to cost him dearly. Napoleon's battle plan was to force Wellington to pull in his reserves by attacking Hougoumont Farm before uh, General Delon rolled up the line from the left. But as the fighting around the farm became fiercer, <coughs> so it became more important. Both sides threw in more troops. There's Wellington, uh, and there's the disposition of the troops. Now you can see here you've got the French. Um, there's Delon there commanding that, that wing. Uh, you've got um, the, the, the ridge. This is an, an escarpment, a ridge. And Wellington's doing his usual thing of putting most of his troops just behind it, keeping the cavalry, those cross-hatched cross ones, uh, in reserve, the French cavalry in reserve till they're needed. And the idea of Napoleon is to uh, get up there, roll them up from the right. Now, um, but they get stuck on Hougoumont Farm, which is... Uh, there, I think. Am I right? Yeah. Hougoumont Farm is there. So very fierce fighting starts around, around there. At the height of um, the, 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 uh, the fighting around Hougoumont, um, depicted here by Clément Auguste Andrieu in 1852, there's 12,000 Allied and 14,000 French troops are battling it out. Wellington later said, the success of the battle turned upon closing the gates at Hougoumont, which is, I think is an exaggeration. Um, but it gives you an idea of the importance they attached to it. Um, meanwhile, Delon uh, launched an attack on a second farmhouse at La Haie-Sante, which is there. Now, you see it's already not, not really doing what he's supposed to. He's supposed to go around there, but in fact he's going really for the centre. Um, uh, this also occasioned fierce fighting. The King's German Legion occupied the farmhouse and they defended it throughout the, the afternoon. Not long after one o'clock, Napoleon learned that Blücher's army was in fact only four or five hours' march away. The defeat of the Allied army under Wellington became more urgent. Now Delon <coughs> managed to beat the Allied armies back and uh, actually 
got penetrated to behind the defensive ridge. He was held up, uh, however, by, uh, by the fighting around La, La Essence. But he did get through, and things didn't look very good. Uh, but he was pushed back then by the British cavalry who came out and, and charged the heavy brigade, heavy cavalry charge. Increasingly desperate, Marshal Ney, who's down on the left there, um, launched a series of cavalry charges against the Allied right because they knew the Prussians were coming. Uh, here's a picture, and you can see what the British forces and their allies did was to form defensive squares. Uh, the French are constantly charging them with cavalry. Uh, here they come there. Uh, but uh, they were met with withering fire. The, the squares held. The French could not break these Allied squares. And when they did overrun the Allied guns, they failed to spike them, so they could simply be reoccupied by uh, the, uh, the gunners, who, of course, retreated to within the squares. Uh, when the French went away, they could simply come out, man the guns again, and fire on them. Uh, Wellington uh, uh, was trapped in a square from which he couldn't really see what was going on. And La Haye-Sainte, at seven in the evening, fell. The French forces went up into the Allied centre. They brought up the guns, and they opened fire on the squares from above. So things started to look extremely bad for Wellington's force. But seven o'clock in the evening was too late. The first Prussian units under Bulow, remember his army had been separated from Blücher's army and was relatively intact uh, and fresh. They'd begun to arrive on the eastern side of the battlefield about 4.30. Delon had to uh, replay, redeploy his forces to deal with them. So essentially he had to... If the Prussians started coming in from here, Delon had to sort of reform like that. And um, uh, the uh, uh, first, uh, the, the, the Prussians began to pour in larger and larger numbers onto the battlefield. The village of Plasnois, as depicted here by Ludwig Elsholtz in 1843, fell to the Prussians and the French were pushed back. A final desperate charge by the old guard against the Allied centre was repelled by Dutch troops who arrived there just in time. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and as the guard retreated, Wellington ordered the general advance. Lord Hill demanded the guard surrender and met with a famous report, the guard dies but it does not surrender although some have said this is an apocryphal tale. The scene is depicted here uh, by the um, English artist Robert Hillingford. <coughs> now, as the Allied and Prussian forces advanced, the French retreat turned into a rout. Though Napoleon and the units protecting him retired in fairly good order. Wellington and Blücher met at the farm of Belle Alliance. In fact, the battle is known in Germany as the Battle of Belle Alliance. Uh, Napoleon had made his headquarters there. He'd left his carriage behind with a large collection of diamonds, which the Prussians took and put into their collection of crown jewels. The scene is painted by... Uh, it's a, it's a, difficult to see, but the point is it's painted by Daniel MacLeese on a mural in the gallery of the House of Lords in 1861 after the Palace of Westminster had been reconstructed following its destruction by fire in 1834. So you go to the House of Lords, you can see this scene. Uh, there's Blücher in his cap and Wellington is... Had Prussians there and um, uh, British there. Well, so to kind of sum up, the battle uh, consisted of 
two phases. In the first, Napoleon made repeated attempts to defeat the Allied army under Wellington. Here he essentially failed because of the, instead of the tactical flexibility that had led him to victory in earlier battles, the quick reactions, <coughs> the element of surprise and so on, he'd simply launched a series of frontal assaults. <coughs> Even if his intention had been to roll up the Allied armies from the left flank, he, <coughs> he was diverted first by fighting around Hougoumont and then by attack on the centre and La Haye-Sainte. Delon did not manoeuvre his forces around the left flank, but launched a frontal assault far too close to the centre. Marshal Ney's late attempt to destroy the Allied right was similarly made through a frontal assault. And you could say, some have said, that they're the ones who messed it up, uh, and Napoleon's plan uh, would have worked had they had the intelligence to carry it through. There's no sign of the tactic of encirclement that had made Napoleon famous. Whether he's weakened by illness or lost his tactical genius in the face of his desperation at the knowledge that the Prussians were coming soon, he could not adapt <coughs> any longer with the speed, flexibility and element of surprise he'd shown through most of his career. Damn the fella, said Wellington. He's a mere pounder after all. If the first phase of the battle was fairly evenly balanced, with Napoleon holding the advantage but unable to overcome Wellington, the second phase of the battle, which began around half past four in the afternoon with the arrival of the first Prussian units, was the decisive one. Napoleon was now faced with overwhelming odds, 74,000 troops pitted against 118,000 Allied and Prussian troops. Two phases in the battle can be seen quite clearly uh, in this graphic. You can see the French moving up, the Allies getting themselves ready, and the French guns there, and now off they go. And they are unable to do it. The cavalry repelling them there. And then the Prussians start to arrive, the black ones here. Charges by Ney and the cavalry, repeated charges, but failing to block these, to destroy these squares. And the Prussians are pushing them back there. French more Prussians coming in, Prussian cavalry, and the French have to retreat from the field. So I'll run that once more, okay? <laughs> <coughs> it all happens a lot quicker than here than it happened in reality, of course. <laughs> and you've got the time up the top here, right? So one o'clock is when they, the French start. Two o'clock, they fail to destroy the centre there, repelled by the cavalry. Then, three o'clock, Russians start arriving. They're getting desperate here, not breaking the squares. Now the Prussians are coming in large numbers, pushing the French back at five o'clock, six o'clock. More and more Prussians are coming in. Uh, it, it's the, they can't do anything more. Uh, they're now surrounded. Effectively, they're surrounded, and they're pushed off the field. Okay. Right. That's just the, Prus <laughs> just the Prussian cavalry are trying to chase it. Well, this is what happens to Napoleon. Um, a, uh, uh, now, the uh, casualties on the Allied side amounted to 15,000 dead and wounded. 7,000 dead and wounded in the Prussian forces. Napoleon lost 25,000 men, 7,000 captured, 15,000 deserted, <coughs> uh, either after the battle or, or, or even during it. On the following morning, uh, General Grouchy not marching towards the sound of battle, defeated the Prussians under Thielemann at Wavre, but all he could do then was retreat. 
um, because the, uh, the Battle of Waterloo was over. So uh, his 33,000 troops might have given Napoleon victory had they joined them at Waterloo. Napoleon went back to Paris, abdicated 24th June. He was taken to St. Helena on the uh, British warship HMS Bellerophon, seen in here uh, in an 1880 picture by Sir William Orchardson. On this remote island in the Atlantic, he managed to dictate his memoirs before dying on the 5th of May, 1821. And as a... the the, the main uh, other victim, as it were, was Marshal Ney, whose treachery in going over to Napoleon's side when he was supposed to defeat him uh, at the beginning of the Hundred Days was not forgiven by Louis XVIII, and he was uh, condemned for treason and shot. How decisive was the Battle of Waterloo? Well, certainly it finished the Napoleonic dream, uh, but had Napoleon proved victorious, he'd still have needed to deal with Schwarzenbank's 200,000-strong army encamped on the other side of the Rhine, beginning to launch an invasion of France. (coughs) The um, contemporary cartoonist Cruikshank, indeed, portrayed Napoleon, Corsican shuttlecock, being battered backwards and forwards by Blücher and Schwarzenberg in a kind of game of of badminton. So he's really trapped between the two two, two armies. Then there's a Russian force of a quarter of a million men marching in from the east. By the time of Waterloo, they'd reached central Germany, and they would have reached the French border in a few weeks after that. And there's another army uh, threatening Napoleon from northern Italy. So the, 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 uh, the odds are overwhelming. Sooner or later, the European powers gathered at Vienna would have defeated him. So in that sense, the Battle of Waterloo was not an all-or-nothing encounter. And it's rather misleading to claim it prevented Napoleon from re-establishing his empire and launching a fresh bid to conquer Europe, that was never not going to happen. But the real, what had the real effect was Napoleon's ability to raise such a large force in such a short time. The fact he almost defeated the Allied armies under Wellington. It's the nearest run thing you ever saw in your life, as the Duke said. From now on until the middle of the 19th century, the major allies, uh, Russia, Austria, Prussia, and Britain, established a system of international uh, relations, the concert of Europe, in succession to the Seventh Coalition, to prevent the recurrence of anything like the French Revolution or the Napoleonic Wars. <coughs> the Congress of Vienna imposed harsher terms on France than it had proposed when it first convened. Periodic international congresses met to regulate international relations. Here's the Congress of Verona, for example, in 1822. Uprisings and revolutions were to be crushed by concerted international action as they were in Italy and Spain in the 1820s. There actually armies going into those countries to restore uh, monarchs who had been deposed in a revolution. So in this sense, the defeat of Napoleon did not prevent authoritarian rule over Europe. It established it. It crushed rebellion, uh, and uh, there's a system of policing that tries to stop um, revolutionary outbreaks. The peace is restored then. There's no major wars in Europe for a century till the outbreak of World War I in 1914. There are limited uh, conflicts, limited in the number of um, countries that are engaged in them, limited by time, limited by aims. The Crimean War, the the wars uh, of German unification, Italian unification. Um, Really, um, uh, it's not the Battle of Waterloo that creates a general peace in Europe until 1914. What's decisive, actually, is the British elimination of the French global empire 
over the course of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wars. Um, there was no chance of a, a re-emergence of a Napoleonic-style global empire. The French had been defeated in North America and India. His Britain's uh, command of the seas throughout most of the 19th century that really guarantees there's another battle of Trafalgar by Clarks and Stanfield, 1836. So European states are not going to be embroiled in a worldwide conflict as they had been in the 18th century. Not until the emergence of, a, of other global empires and the rise of a rival European power with global ambitions, Germany, at the end of the 19th century, did this situation look as if it's going to change. So between them, the concert of Europe and the British domination of the seas ensured that the 19th century was a century of peace. Napoleon's legacy proved to be rather different. To some, he appeared as a mere dictator and warmonger, but everywhere he ruled, he replaced custom and privilege with the rationality and uniformity of bureaucratic efficiency. While his armies rampaged across Europe, his bureaucrats moved in behind, reorganizing, systematizing, standardizing. Local and regional jurisdictions were swept away. Church and seigneurial courts were removed. In all these areas that he conquered, the Napoleonic law code replaced existing, often centuries-old, tradition-bound laws and ordinances, introducing key elements of equality before the law. Property rights were guaranteed wherever the code applied, as they had not been in many areas. Serfdom was swept away. The code proclaimed many ideas of the French Revolution, including the freedom of the individual, as Napoleon himself proclaimed in his testament, equality of opportunity, career open to the talents, rule of reason. The early 19th century painter uh, Jean-Baptiste Moses' portrayal of Napoleon writing the civil code, crowned by the allegory of time, says something, I think, according to the, uh, about the importance according to these measures in France and, and more generally in Europe after 1815. You know, weights and measures were to some extent standardized, internal customs, tolls abolished, guilds removed, restrictions on labor swept away, and so on. So um, <coughs> everywhere Napoleon brought change, and as he departed for St. Helena, it was clear much of it could not be reversed. <coughs> he left behind a political legend that quickly developed into a potent myth encouraged by his own, whether genuine or not, turn to liberal ideas during the Hundred Days. Very much aware of the weakness of his situation, he went to some length to reassure the world that his, right, his dreams of conquest were over, he'd respect the rights and liberties of the citizen and so on, and contained, continued the same vein uh, in writing before his death in 1821, as his death mask. In subsequent decades, the legend of the liberal emperor gained still in further in potency. During his life, remarked writer Chateaubriand, the world slipped from his grasp, but in death he possesses it. In France, Bonapartism came to stand for patriotism, universal man of suffrage, sovereignty of the nation, institutions of an efficient centralized administration that dealt equally with all citizens, the periodic consultation of the people uh, through plebiscites and referendums, uh, an implicit <clears throat> contract between Frenchmen and the state that provided social order political stability, national pride. Uh, the image of Napoleon was celebrated in countless popular stories and cheap pamphlets, folk songs, paintings, sculptures, old imperial coins, tobacco boxes and trinkets, scarves and caps, uh, even in uh, children's sweets, chocolates or boiled sugar confections made in the shape of the emperor or bonbons with wrappings uh, with Napoleon's symbols. 
Men cultivated extravagant moustaches to advert, advertise their admiration for the Grand Army's magnificently bewhiskered old guard and wore violets or red carnations in their buttonholes in defiance of the ban opposed on the imperial colours by the French monarchy. So Napoleon, uh, one of his legacies was an enormous wave of kitsch that swept across France uh, after, after his death. Uh, but the cult of Napoleon stood for many people outside France for the achievements of the revolution, translated into purposeful reform after the excesses of the terror in the early 1790s. Uh, Irish Republicans, Polish nationalists, looked to Napoleon for inspiration in their political struggles. In uh, Armenia, a potent and widespread legend idolized the mythical figure of Panaporte, who conquered the world, destroyed Russia by fire, and strangled the Pope. Native American tribes incorporated Napoleon to their folk tales. European settlers named 15 towns in the USA Napoleon or Bonaparte by 1859. Latin American liberators looked to his military exploits for inspiration. The Venezuelan liberator of large parts of the continent from the Spanish rule, Simon Bolivar, uh, seen here in an anonymous portrait, uh, lived for a while in France and uh, was so enthusiastic about Napoleon he actually made the journey to Milan to see his hero crowned king of Italy. Even in Britain, where he was widely reviled as bony, a rapacious and militaristic despot whose parents told children would come and get them if they didn't behave themselves, um, uh, there were some radicals who retained a, 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 a admiration for Napoleon as a, as a liberal and democratic reformer. Retrospectively, in France itself, even the Battle of Waterloo became a kind of victory, celebration of courage in the face of overwhelming odds, of patriotism, of self-sacrifice for the nation. And the restored French monarchy did not last long. And the Allies made sure, this time, that Louis XVIII made more concessions to the revolutionary Napoleonic legacy than he'd done in 1814. At the insistence of the Duke of Wellington, he uh, was forced to appoint two of Napoleon's chief aides to leading positions, Joseph Fouché, Minister of Police, and Talleyrand, Foreign Minister and Head of the Government, who I mentioned earlier, went over to the other side. Or, as Chateaubriand put it, vice leaning on the arm of crime. Louis had to recognise that the émigrés couldn't get their land back. He had to concede an elected legislature, though it was very limited in its powers and its uh, franchise. The Napoleonic structure of administrative département was retained with it the law code. The French legitimists never really accepted these changes. Louis' brother, Charles X, seen here uh, in a portrait uh, by Pierre Narcisse Guerra, succeeded him in 1824 as a rather more determined reactionary. It's interesting, uh, both he and Louis XVIII wear these very elaborate uh, robes. Uh, it shows how, uh, I think, they, they unconsciously feel that they need to emphasize their legitimacy by wearing these kinds of... If you go to Apsley House, the Duke of Wellington's house uh, in London, you'll see a picture of the Louis XVIII in these fantastic robes. And, and France is first of, um, of, uh, of Austria, who's just in a plain military uniform. He knows he's got power. He knows he's the most powerful man in Europe. He doesn't need to advertise it with all his ermine. Um, so uh, Charles's attempt to turn the, turn the clock back led to disaster in 1830. Um, uh, he was overthrown in a revolution that brought his cousin, the liberal Duc d'Orléans, to the throne in the so-called July monarchy. Bonaparte came to power again in the 1848 revolution, uh, uh, in the wake of the 1848 revolution, in a coup d'état by Napoleon's nephew in 1851. The journalist and adventurer Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, portrayed here 
1861 by Jean Hippolyte Flaudrin. The echoes of the coup which brought the first Napoleon to power in 1799 prompted Karl Marx to make his famous statement that history repeats itself the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. The Second Empire did last for two decades. Tight authoritarian control at home, rigged elections, the rapid development of the economy kept Napoleon III, as he styled himself, uh, in power uh, because he said Napoleon II had been Napoleon II, though he never actually ruled. He was kind of the first modern dictator because he relied on the appearance, manufacturing the appearance of popular support to stay in power. His ceaseless search for la gloire abroad and adventures that would somehow uh, make his reputation live up to that of his illustrious predecessor disturbed the European equilibrium with his involvement in the Crimean War and the wars of Italian unification. Uh, but also the American world, uh, as he sent troops to impose a member of the Habsburg family, uh, on the Mexicans as their emperor, which ended uh, in the poor man being shot. The <clears throat> Second Empire met its nemesis in the form of Otto von Bismarck, who en engineered a war with a willing Napoleon III in 1870 that ended with a crushing defeat for France, the creation of the Third Republic, and the German Empire. As for the Duke of Wellington, he entered French, uh, British politics as a conservative, he became prime minister twice. Uh, he cult cultivated his image as a national hero, uh, was successful enough to be granted a massive state funeral at his death in 1850. He lost no importance to boost the, uh, not opportunity to boost the importance of Waterloo, and indeed its reputation as a history-changing event in which he played the decisive role owed a lot to his skillful manipulation of its memory. He claimed already in his famous dispatch from the battlefield that the Prussians had arrived far later than they actually did. He even went so far as to suppress a model depicting the battle that gave full recognition to the role played by the Prussians. Uh, the battle that Wellington wanted remembered was largely this one, where there's not a Prussian in sight, <laughs> and not this one, and I'll give you, uh, that, that's where the, the, the Prussians are, have all, all arrived there. I began by citing the popular view in this country that Waterloo is a battle in which the British, led by the Duke of Wellington, bashed the French, led by the Emperor Napoleon, and thus brought his dream of a European dictatorship to an end in a decisive moment uh, of world history. I've argued in this lecture that the, Victorian army was, the victorious army was not British, but multinational, with Germans predominating, British troops, although very important, in a minority. It was not the Duke of Wellington who won, but the Prussians led by Marshal Blücher, whose bravery indeed cost him his life only four years later, since he never really recovered from his wounds. Wellington's achievement was to defend his lines successfully against the repeated assaults of Napoleon's troops. And that is no mean achievement, and a very, very important one. But he didn't actually manage to defeat Napoleon. Napoleon, of course, was not emperor of the French. He was an outlaw, a renegade, an escaped prisoner. His army did indeed consist of Frenchmen, unlike most of the armies he'd led earlier on, like the Grand Army, for example. But many Frenchmen refused to support him, and he can't be said to have represented the French. Indeed, since the legitimate and internationally recognized French government was a member of the Seventh Coalition, one would be justified in saying that the French were on the winning side in the battle. <laughs> Napoleon did not aim at creating a European dictatorship, but said, 
at least that he wanted a liberal regime. And that's, in fact, how he's mostly remembered on the European continent, because his reforms have brought many civil freedoms. Waterloo was a decisive victory, but had Napoleon lost, he'd still have faced overwhelming odds from those other huge armies under the Austrians and the Russians uh, uh, who, were faced, who were about to, would have come into France and completed the route. The long peace that followed owed more to British command of the sea. In Europe, what followed the Allied victory in 1815 was a long period of unity, and perhaps the most important lesson to draw from the events of 200 years ago is that European unity is the best guarantee of international peace and stability, as indeed it has been on this continent since the end of the Second World War some 70 years ago. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.